I am Allison Doyle, Associate Director at the Iowa State University Research Park and host of the Innovators Podcast. The Iowa State University Research Park is a place where innovators flourish, and we welcome you to our podcast where we showcase innovators from our ecosystem. We're here today at the Iowa State University Research Park with Craig Rupp of Sabanto. Thanks for joining us on episode 37 of the Innovators Podcast, Craig. How are you today? Good, and thank you for having me, Allison. Absolutely. Do you want to start by telling us just a little bit about yourself and your background? Okay. I uh, grew up on a farm in northwest Iowa, corn, soybeans, hogs, and cattle, and thought I was cursed growing up on a farm. I always tell my brother I was the spare, not the heir, and left Northwest Iowa in 1984, and I went to Iowa State and became an electrical engineer. When I was a senior in high school, I wanted to be an electronics technician, and I applied to and got accepted at various schools throughout you know that neck of the woods, and then I saw the cost. And what went through my mind is, you know, I think state schools, I had heard state schools are much, much less expensive. And believe it or not, the first thing I did was I, I called University of Iowa. I called them and I, someone answered the phone. The lady answered the phone and said, hello. And I said, yeah, do you, do you guys offer an electronics technician degree? And the first thing she said was, uh, no, try Iowa State. And I'm like, Okay. And so I called Iowa State, and this little lady, who is a goddess to me, answered the phone. And she, I asked her, you know, do you have an electronic technician's degree? And this lady paused for about five seconds, and she goes, do you know what an engineer is? And I had no idea. I had never met any of them. I think I knew what an electronic technician, the guy who used to come, there was a day when people would come to fix your television, and I thought it was just the coolest thing I've ever seen. This this person knows how to rip apart this TV and change the tubes and whatnot. But I had no idea what the difference between an engineer and a technician was. And this lady spent 20 minutes talking to me, explaining what an electronics technician versus an engineer. After the 20 minutes, she convinced me to become an electrical engineer. Any teenage kid, they don't listen to authority. So my guidance counselor, no, I'm not going to listen to him. But this lady, I don't know, for for one reason or another, she convinced me. Right message at the right time, right? Absolutely. Then uh, when I graduated, I went to the Chicagoland area, and I worked for Motorola on cell phones. In about 1995, I left Motorola and started a company called Alliance Technologies Group with two other friends that I met at Motorola. Uh, Another one was an Iowa State grad, by the way. So I need to go back for just a second. This is what year again you're working for Motorola? Uh, 1988. So we're talking about like a cell phone in a bag, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yep, that was... uh, The brick. Yeah, the the brick phone. Well, the brick phone and the... uh, But the, the bag phone. Was uh, was what we called it internally. It was kind of interesting. In in, in Motorola, they uh, they would name their phones and Ditto Jane. Um, there, there was there was just code names for all the phones. And I started on GSM, which was a, a European digital standard, one of the first digital, well, the first digital cellular systems. And then I moved to Iridium, and so we, I knew a lot about Satcom and and uh, and and selling just just the 
a lot of mobile phones and uh, just the networking as well. It had to be pretty cool for a kid from a farm in northwest Iowa going to the big city and working on cell phones before they were ever really a big thing. Yeah, and it was kind of uh, interesting. I used to fly down to Chandler, Arizona, and uh, we used to do integration with the satellites. So you're in a room, you know, with your phone talking to this uh, gold-colored uh, satellite that you know eventually will be shot into the air. It was, it was kind of it was kind of, it was kind of an interesting career for a for a young person. I would imagine so. So you can go back on track now that I've taken you off course. <laughs> Yeah, so then I got my master's degree um, while I was at in the Chicago area, worked um, while I was at Motorola, and then uh, the three of us decided to leave Motorola and start a company. And we were no more than a guns for hire; we were contracting consulting engineers. And you know, I did that until about two thousand and two, when the economy you know took a dive, and the three of us decided to go our separate ways. And uh, I was kind of uh, tired of being in the Chicago area, and I wanted to move back to Iowa. I had young children, be closer to my family. And uh, I moved back to Ames, Iowa. Then I took a job with John Deere, which kind of pulled me back into agriculture. And I developed the Starfire receiver and the Green Star display for them while I was at, uh, while I was at Deere, working for the, at the time, it was called the AMS Group down in Urbandale, Iowa. So what's that do? Um, the Starfire receiver. Yep. It was a G, it was it was their their GPS, GPS receiver, and it was an L1 L2 type of receiver that had an integrated uh, IMU in it, and it was primarily sub one inch accuracy used for auto steer. Deer was uh, was pushing into ag tech uh, precision agriculture. And that was one of their, you know, primary products in that industry. And then the Green Star display was, think of it as just the the, the user interface and the controller for, you know, like planting, doing applications, and also for auto steer. So it was it was two of their, you know, pivotal, uh, seminal products into precision agriculture. So this is what year ish? That was about two thousand and five timeframe. So I think what's interesting um, when you start hearing about you know Tesla and self-driving cars and things is I think the greater population doesn't often realize that Big Egg has been in this space for quite some time and um, starting with really auto steer. Is that accurate? It is accurate. And if you look at you know the world in general, a lot of I guess innovations came from agriculture outside of agriculture as well. Farmer is the original entrepreneur, right? Yeah, they are. And but if you look at, you know, the the best story that I have is is, you know, who who invented the assembly line? Henry Ford. You know where he got his inspiration? Swift packing. They were disassembling. And so he sent, you know, a, a team of engineers to Chicago to study how Swift disassembles they were, you know, a meat packer, and they just did it in reverse. And then Henry Ford was also, he was obsessed with the way they moved grain, the belts that they used to move grains. And that's how, you know, a lot of his inspiration came from agriculture. And the same with, you know, auto steer. You know, it, it back, you know, if you go 10 years ago, everyone was talking about how, you know, they're going to have, uh, you know, autonomous cars or cars that drive themselves. Like, hell, farmers been doing that for 10 years. 
so what are you talking about? But he, and you know, in the middle of a farm field that's you know got clumps of dirt and rocks and absolutely you know, a little bit different than a road. Absolutely, yeah. But the concept definitely was there in agriculture. So fast forward. So you had a company that you started. You were actually at the research park with one of your prior companies, correct? What I did was I left John Deere. I was I, I love consulting and contracting. Mm-hmm. It's like every day is different. You know, you work on a project for like three months, and then after three months, you're on to something different. And so I really, really missed that. So I rekindled Alliance Technologies Group, and I was out here in the research park. This time, instead of being generic, um, I focused solely on wireless and communications. That was really my expertise and my, you know, what I had spent the majority of my career doing. And I... I developed, I started working with high volume manufacturers. This is, you know, the Apples, the Blackberries, the Ram, Samsung. And I focused on making, reducing test time in their manufacturing. The rule of thumb for manufacturers, it's a million dollars per second per line per year. So you walk into, you know, manufacturing and they'll have 16 lines. If you can shave a second off their test time, it's $16 million a year. Wow. And there's tricks you can play that that would employ to reduce that test time. And I started, you know, developing some IP, and then a company out of Austin, Texas, came in and, and purchased a company called, and the company was called National Instruments. So then I uh, I spent nine years in the research park here, uh, working for National Instruments, and I would literally travel all over the world, all over Europe, all over Asia, South America, North America, implementing. I guess, optimized algorithms for these manufacturing test sites throughout the world. So at some point, you decided to make a leap and do your own thing. How's that happen? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, after nine years at National Instruments, a couple things happened. I realized that I had built up a team internally, and they were pretty much self-sufficient. I wanted to make sure I didn't leave with the barn empty. The second thing is I was, uh, I pretty much knew everything I could possibly know. I wasn't learning. I was, it was just step and repeat, step and repeat. And every year, myself and a bunch of ex-Motorolans, we would go snowmobiling up in the Upper Peninsula. And one of my friends, and uh, a guy who has a career similar to mine, he and I, you know, were sitting having a beer, and we decided that we're going to go out and start starting companies. And we started a company, uh, a data company down in Oklahoma, developed satellite communications, deploying data communications on oil rigs. We did that for a couple of years. We sold that company. Then when I was at, and this is, this is how it's all coming, you know, how all these roads came together. When I was working with Apple on their iPad, and I saw that, and I thought to myself, I guess I was reminded of my time at John Deere working on the Green Star Display. And I thought, this is what the Green Star Display should have been or might actually become. And I carried that idea around me for two years. And while I was snowmobiling, I, it took me two years to convince my friend that we should do something in agriculture. I think agriculture, I, you know, they have all the agronomists, all the, you know, soil scientists, but I, I think they needed an injection of, 
you know, some electrical engineering. And I think there's places that we can play a part in that. So we started a company called 640 Labs, and it was started here in the research park as well. Our original goal was we wanted to replace the 2630 display that John Deere had with an iPad. And the first thing we did needed to do was we needed to get that data out of the tractor and onto that iPad. And we created this little device. It's basically a CAN transceiver with a Bluetooth uh, transceiver on it, which converts from CAN to Bluetooth and plugs right into any ag equipment with an engine, has what's called this ISO 11789 port on it. And it plugs right into that. And then all sorts of data, all the engine data, all the uh, agronomic data flows on this interface. And what we did was we took it into the uh, into the iPad. Interesting. So then you sell that company? I did. Okay. Uh, we, we got acquired by Monsanto in December of 2014. You know, it was quite a defining moment in my career. And then I spent four years at the Climate Corporation, which is a subsidiary of, uh, of Monsanto. We deemed ourselves or named ourselves a data acquisition group, and our goal was to get the data out of the equipment up into the cloud, and that's essentially what I did for four years. So you're hanging out working in the cloud space before the cloud space is cool. Absolutely. Yeah, we were probably one of the first companies, oh, 640 Labs was, to actually put uh, agriculture data, get it on Amazon up in the cloud, yeah. Interesting. So I've noticed a theme that when these companies that you've had have been acquired that you've stuck around, and I think this is pretty typical. Was this part of the part of the deal when you were bought out that you'd hang out for a year or two? Yeah, there's always riders in the contract that I have to stick around for a given amount of time. You know, but throughout my career, you know, it's like when I was at National Instruments. I didn't leave because I didn't like the place or I was disgruntled. I left because I wanted, you know, the team there is self-sufficient. And I'm off to greener pastures. Sure. I, I get bored easily and I have ADHD. <laughs> so oh, when people are innovators, that's what they do. Right? Yeah. They yeah. get something built up and then it's time for them to turn it yeah. over to someone else to scale. And then, and then off they go and do it again. Absolutely. And I was, I've always said I'm a starter, not a closer. So what did Monsanto do with the technology that they bought? Are they selling that to people? They are. They took the drive, and it's now called the FieldView drive. They have this system called FieldView, and which farmers use to look at and monitor and track and analyze their data. And that company is still pitching and using FieldView at this point in time. <laughs> Excellent. So you spin out of there, and then... I mean, do you just go snowmobiling again and come up with another idea, have a beer with your buddy? How's this work? So Bear buys Monsanto, and I am free to go. And it was after four years. And I wanted to do something audacious. You know, I'm, I'm nearing the end of my career, if you can't tell. Take the big swing, huh? Take a big swing. If you're going to solve a problem, make it a big problem. And every farmer I worked with while I was at Monsanto I worked with a lot of farmers, and each and every one of them told told me about just the, the problem with labor in agriculture. And it's not the cost of labor. It's just a lack of labor. Finding people. Finding people. And so it all came down to I spent years and years automating manufacturing lines and, and reducing test time and, and reducing labor in manufacturing plants. And I have a farming background, grew up on a farm, 
and I'm an engineer and an, uh, I'm an entrepreneur. And one night I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking, well, someone's going to do this. Someone's going to take autonomy into agriculture. And, you know, that person's going to be me. Might as well be me. Yeah. Right? So I left in 2018 and I had this audacious goal that I'm going to go out in the spring of 2019 and I'm going to start planting autonomously. So I went out and I leased a JCB 4220, a 220 horsepower tractor. And I went and I never thought I would ever in my life buy a planter. But I went and bought an 18-row, 20-inch planter and spent the winter writing software. And then uh, someone's got to haul this equipment around. So I went and got a CDL. So I'm probably the only CEO you've ever met that has an actual CDL. You know, the, the spring of 2019, I was out there uh, in the field planting autonomously. So why did you start with tractor planter combo? <laughs> That's a good question. Probably it's my nature. I knew it would be the hardest. And I'm like, you know. I, I, I can figure that out. I can figure out all the rest of it. Yeah, if I can figure that out, then I can, I can figure out all the rest of it. And what it did was it, you know, when I eventually hired people, I knew that it would put them in a mindset of, you know, where the end is, not where the beginning is, where the end is. You know, we implemented uh, things that, or I guess functionality that you need in other field operations. Planting is by far the hardest. You know, you have downforce, you have planting population, you have monitoring seed level, you have, it's just, it's just really hard compared to tillage and even applications. So do you have any good stories where you drove the, the thing, drove off the end of the field into the <laughs> fence or you screwed something up? Nothing that I would admit to. <laughs> you know, I will say that, uh, you know, early on, we really lacked a lot of functionality. And I'll give you an example of one. We were RTK based, meaning that we had, you know, sub one inch accuracy when we were planting. However, we didn't have the means, you know, when RTK dropped, we didn't have the means of knowing whether that happened or not. Just given the time, tyranny of the urgent, we just didn't have time to implement anything like that. So you're watching this tractor. God, this looks beautiful. All of a sudden, you know, it veers off five feet and it's still planting. And it's like, oh, my God. We're like, so what is this thing planting? <laughs> Do we have RTK? No, we don't. And he pauses. And it's just stuff like that where, you know, it was just a lack of functionality that, that we had in our, in our system. And so you knew you had it working. So then you go to work on refining what? Absolutely. Yeah, and we've been spending two, three years doing that. And what's kind of interesting about our company is I wanted to make sure that we were, the onus was on us to get it to work. And so I can go to farmers and get them to, you know, pay us for planting, pay us for doing tillage or other field operations. And you know, there was one time where I had all seven of my engineers sitting in a tent about the side of a field, making sure that this thing is running. I'll be honest, and there are days where we spent 12 hours, uh, or no, actually more than that. It was like 20 hours, and we, we only planted about 30 acres. And it was one problem after the next. It was tweaking, fixing. Yeah, and it was, you know, believe it or not, once you get the thing started, it, it would run forever. But getting it started takes a long time. 
got to create the path plan. You got to know where it's at. You got to know where it's heading is. You got to make sure the, you know, all the plates are spinning. And, you know, the first year, you know, we, you know, it was blood, sweat, and tears. And it, there was a lot of frustrations. All of us were frustrated at, at one thing or another. But you hang in there. I mean, that's part of the process. You've learned that. From yeah. A little bit of failure over the years. I'm. Yeah, sure. that's probably the hardest thing. Uh, you know, if you if you're going to take on such an endeavor, or if you're going to be the the CEO or the leader, or be an entrepreneur and start a company, you got to paint paint a smile on your face and keep the troops pointed in the right direction. Yeah, be the guy that's cup half full when everybody else is cup half empty, right? Absolutely, and it is. It's something they really don't teach you and. You know, there's going to be a lot of frustrations and a lot of people getting, uh, you know, on your team getting upset about, you know, where, you know, where we are and this isn't working. Why isn't this working? Who's responsible for this? And a lot of peer pressure and whatnot. But you, you got to keep, you know, just saying, guys, this is hard. This is why nobody's doing this. So where do you think this space is in, in terms of the whole of agriculture right now? Are we still in the early adopter stage i mean i know these tools are on a lot of new machines but most farmers at least those in my family they have machines that are older so are people buying this and and bolting it onto the equipment that they have is it completely widespread is everybody trying it where are we at in the market well right now you can't go and purchase an autonomy system through our dealers and distributors that we're setting up right now there's a lot of farmers that I know that are asking for it and want it. And I think uh, from day one, you know, when I started the company, there were some tenants or some principles, if you will, that I made. Number one, I don't think autonomy is an all or nothing proposition. And I think that tractors will still have seats and steering wheels. And it's akin to you have cruise control on your car. Nobody uses cruise control to back their car out of their garage. Sure. And there's something to say that I can jump on this tractor and I can move it from point A to point B without having to pull out my phone, without having to, you know, get internet connectivity or get, or get Wi-Fi connectivity with it. There's something to say about about that. Yeah. I still want to drive with my mirrors even though I've got a camera. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the And the other thing, too, is... Tractors are, they're like the Swiss Army knife of agriculture. They have three-point hitches. They have PTO shafts. They have uh, hydraulics. They have, they're a jack-of-all-trades. And tractors, you know, it, it, it just pains me to see a tractor collecting dust for, let's say, nine months out of the year when you can actually put it to work. And you can push snow with it. You can, you know, use it as an auger tractor. There's, there's other types of activities you can use a tractor for. And I, I wanted to make sure that this, that the company focuses on retrofitting tractors that are off the shelf. The other reason why we went with off the shelf tractors, so last thing the world I want to do is design a tractor or build a tractor. First of all, there's a hell of a lot of parts to them. Second of all, building a tractor, having the wherewithal of doing that, there's companies out there that do a damn fine job at doing that. And, you know, it's something that is off the shelf for us. So that's why we, we went with off-the-shelf tractors, making a retrofit kit for them. And then the tractors can be run normally as if there wasn't uh, an autonomy system on it. 
So you just push the button when you want it to work, essentially. Is Absolutely. That, is it that simple? Yeah. It's actually a, a toggle switch, but... <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So where's the company at today? So what we're doing is we're commercializing autonomy. Uh, we built up a distributor network all throughout the U.S., mostly uh, Midwest agriculture, and we're on the West Coast as well. And right now we're supporting the Kubota M5, which is a yep, smaller... Blake Shelton with an autonomous uh, system on his Kubota. He, he always driving his around on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he could be your social media influence. Not right? yet, but we, yeah, we should... We'll work on that. Yeah, we you. should get him. Uh, right now we're focused on, on the Kubota M5. And then we're adding different makes and models to our platform as well. And we're working with some enterprises and some uh, some other opportunities, which uh, driving autonomy into their organization. How many of these M5s are there out there in the world? Uh, you know what? I think there is on the order of ten to 20,000 in the U.S. But don't quote me on that. That's what someone told me at one time. So you try to get some market share in that particular space and then move yeah. on to other models, I presume? Yeah, and it, well, and what's funny is there, there's a lot of field activities that the M5 is particularly, I guess, built for, first and foremost. When we were doing this, it was kind of funny. This this was back in 2021, or yeah, or no, 2020, we had, uh, we had gotten an incoming email from a, uh, a guy at the Air Force, and he said, hey, I really like what you're doing. Could you get one of your systems and bring it down to Scott Air Force Base in downstate Illinois? And at the time, it was springtime. We were, we were going out planting. We were getting all our planters kind ready. Kind of busy right now. Yeah, kind of busy right now. <laughs> and, and, but, but then I, t- I did talk to him, and he said, well, you know, we, we, need, we want to mow. And at the time, I'm like, you know, I know, I know, I know some companies, Greensy in particular, who's kind of our sister company. They're they're mowing and they're taking a zero turn mower and automating that. And I said, you need to talk to CBQ. You need to talk to this guy. And he looked at what they were doing and he said, and later this, you know, this fall, he uh, this this Air Force uh, colonel called me and he said. Uh, I think it would be in your best interest if you came down and showed us what you guys are doing. And uh, I was like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so we loaded up our uh, our M5, uh, threw it on the back of our uh, uh, trailer on our uh, pickup, and we took it down there. And, um, you know, lo and behold, they, 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 they mow broad acres, 500 acres they mow with a um, – they have batwing mowers. And it's 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 pretty much a field operation, just as any. It's, it's not it's not like mowing your lawn. This is this is a serious uh, uh, field operation, and uh, we we got a contract with the government. Right now, uh, we have systems running down at uh, Patrick Space Force Base down in Florida. Cool. Yeah. So well, that's fun. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I had no idea. I mean, when you when you start a company. You know, you have all these wild plans or aspirations, and you you have no idea where you're going to end up. You have no idea. You have to follow the opportunities sometimes, and it really takes you into some really interesting interesting uh, opportunities. It really does. So, why the name? Why oh. the name Sabanto? 
Where'd that come from? I uh, I sat down one night. And I said, "Well, I got to name this thing." And th- there was there were hours and hours of discussion on that. And at the time, I was obsessed with Japanese words, and I thought Atari was just a really cool name for a company. And it is a cool name for a company. I've never really thought about that. Before. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, I, you know, at the time, I, I was just obsessed with Japanese words in particular. I think they they have a they have a really weird naming uh, sound to them and what i did was i um i wanted a name that was uh, peculiar that was unique someone googles it you'll be the first on the list and uh smanto means servant in japanese that's i just decided to go down that route i like it yeah servant of the agricultural world yeah there yeah if you look at a lot of startups in agriculture they all have field farm Grow leaves in the logo. leaves and and what I wanted <laughs> exactly, and then meanwhile you look at you look you know the biggest ag you know companies in agriculture today, you got John Deere, you got Monsanto, you got Cortiva, you got well Pioneer, you have CNH. They're just they're just generic names, and people know who they are. They don't have to uh, have any level of inquiry about yeah. what that is. Yeah, well, very cool. So what do you think is next from here and um and what and if you could add to that, what's the why the research park? You've come back here and a number of different times. Is it because our grass looks so good? What's the what's the hitch? You know, that's a really good question. Uh Those yeah. two questions. No yeah, I know. Two hard ones. Well, first of all, let, let me just comment on Iowa. I'll be completely transparent and honest with you. When I graduated college, I had opportunities in Florida. I had opportunities in Texas, and then I had opportunities in Chicago, and I wanted to go to Florida. Farm boy. Uh, Get me out of here. Get me out of here. I'm in Florida. Oh, you know, just the images going through my mind. I used my head and not my heart, and I went to Chicago because uh, I knew, I I thought, and I knew Motorola opportunity would, would, would strengthen my career, which turned out to be the best decision I ever made. Living in Chicago or the Chicago area, it's a rat race. A rat's one. My wife and I are both Iowans, and I came home one Friday night, had a beer, and said, what are we doing here? And for uh, about a month, it, uh, it was just going through my mind that I like Iowa. You know, I wanted to run away from it, but then I, uh, I looked back at what it has to offer, and I think it's a, I think it's a great place to raise children. And so I moved back here. I did the same thing. I joke, um, you know, we talk about the brain drain in this state a lot. And I joke all the time that, you know, let the students leave if they want to go and spread their wings and fly after they graduate. But catch them with a screaming baby when they're sitting on the 405 and in the back seat, and, <laughs> and they'll come back. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> good and, living here. Yeah. And that was, that was really my, my first uh, rebound back. So I, I've left this uh, state what uh, three times, and, and now I'm back again. There's there's some force that pulls me back, and I thought I never thought in my career I would be ever be in agriculture, but you know it turns out that it's kind of a unique skill set, and it's very marketable. You know if you have egg experience in your background, believe it or not, and especially as a technologist, I mean all the. Guys at Motorola I worked with, you know, they have no ideas to what uh, what what growing up on a farm or 
you know, doing chores and feeding cattle, what that entails or anything like that. They have no idea what walking beans is. They've never done it, which I can't believe. So that's why Iowa. So initially, my wife and I, uh, again, she grew up in Iowa, um, high school sweetheart. I've known her since I was five. You know, it was on a Friday night. We decided that we're going to move back to Iowa. And we're in Iowa. And we had thought, well, the Des Moines area. And then it's just, well, why not Ames? You know, we, we had thought the athletics, the, the theater, the arts, the, you know, it's kind of a nice, uh, it's kind of a nice little community. Not a bad little spot. Is not, it? not a bad little spot. It really isn't. And, you know, you can get anywhere in five minutes. And whereas, you know, if you want to go to Walmart, it's an hour drive just to get there an hour to, if you're living in Chicago. So we moved back here. And, uh, and then, I, uh, so that was the first time. But why the research park? When I when I left John Deere and started a company, I uh, started rekindled Alliance Technologies Group. I worked about two months out of the house. I'm like, I, I gotta get out of here. I, I need an office. I need I need. I think it's healthy to have an office and go to an office because there's a line of demarcation between your personal life and then your uh, your your business professional life. You know, it's pretty easy after you eat dinner to, hey, I'm going to go back and work. And then, you know, it's just there. And then it starts to affect your family. So I decided that I'm going to get an office. And uh, I was looking for office space and then seeing this research park. And I came down here and I leased an office here. And it was a small, you know, maybe 200 square feet place. Um, And that was my office for the longest time, almost probably 11 years you know it was just me and a couple and a couple other people but then i uh i went back to chicago 640 labs and then when i opened uh Savanto, one of the problems i had was when i started the company I, you know five guys that i knew i needed to hire were sitting in chicago and so i have to put, i have to put my stake in chicago but then the problem i ran into if you're in agriculture you need certain. You need to hire certain people, and they're more agronomic, and it's really hard to get to convince them to move to Chicago. It's like taking someone from Chicago and putting them in the small town that I grew up in, Cherokee, Iowa. They're not going to do it. They're going to last sure. maybe two months, right? And the same holds. I can't take someone from from Cherokee and put them in Chicago. Uh, not unlike product market fit, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And so, a lot of the field operations, the um, the equipment, the the field testing is done here in Ames in Nevada, and a lot of the software development, not all of it, is done right now in Chicago area, Itasca, outside of Chicago. Cool. So, how can we help? How can the research park help you? You know, I think in terms of facilities and opportunities, got that covered. I think, you know, I'll go on with every other, you know, startup here in Iowa. I think, you know, access to capital is really needed here in the Midwest. And that's true in every, you know, Fargo, Ames, Kansas City, St. Louis. It's just access to capital and developing that. VC type of network here, I think is important. Are you still looking for venture financing? No, I closed on a $17 million round back in uh, July of last year. 
And right now, you know, we're looking for engineers and other people as well. Market sales, marketing, and engineers right now. Okay, great. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up here? Um, covered a lot of ground, but I feel like we still have more that we could cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, you know, I think we touched on a lot. You know, if anyone wants to go out and start start a company, you'd be amazed at um, things that you have to take care of that you didn't think uh, you thought would be relatively easy to do. You know, HR, there's reasons why there are HR departments. It's a full-time job keeping on track of everything. Make sure you follow the rules, make sure you have procedures and the HR manual and stuff like that. You know, I know you start off, start the company off and just a ragtag group of people, you know, doing something amazing. But as the company matures, you start to notice that, you know, it takes a lot of time to, to handle the finances and to handle the sales and marketing and the HR. And you got to, you know, eventually you're going to come to a point where you're going to bring in competent people to do that for you. But that is the one thing, I guess, word of advice I would give, just to, to be careful about what you think it's all about. Uh, everything, uh, like the glacier analogy of the 10% of the glacier that's outside of the <laughs> surface of the water that everybody sees, and it's all the work that's underneath it that really makes it. So, I mean, this is not unlike that, it seems. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming and, and hanging out with us today. I hope that maybe we can touch base again in several months and see what sort of progress you've made. And all right. we'll look for a Kubota driving around out here at some point by itself. Yeah. And if you want to get hold of us, uh, you can either follow us on Twitter, Samanto Ag, or go to our website, samantoag.com. <laughs>